welcome to She Does Stand Up 2. This is Laura Sogar. I'm Matthew Broussard, and our guest today is a doozy. Dan Soder has done everything. Comedy Central, he has an HBO special uh, that's called Son of a Gary. Um, he, he's, he's a stand-up, but he's a very successful radio podcast guy. He's an actor on the show Billions. Uh, he's been doing he do? this. Yeah, he still loves stand-up and still really cares about stand-up. And that comes through in this, in this episode and in his stand-up. And he's a very inspiring guy. And, uh, and very funny. I think you're going to like it. And boy, does he have some stories. Please enjoy. And then I was just in Wise Guys in Utah, and I was just like, I forgot how to pack for the road. You know, like uh, my favorite scene in the show, Louie, that I thought was the closest to like, man, that's the best anyone's ever done at putting actual stand-up comedy on TV, was when the it's the Louie episode where Jim Florentine is his feature and buries him the whole time, and then ends up dying in the comedy condo. But this, there's a scene where Louis is about to go on the road and how he counts out his underwear and socks. Mm -hmm. I was like, that, every comic knows that. <laughs> you're like, you just have your underwear and you're like, Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, a just in case. And then you put in the suitcase <laughs> and you're like, socks. And then socks, you're like, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, might go for a run, bam. Might go swimming, bam. And then you put them on there. But my shirts, I forgot to do that with my shirts this time. So I got to Saturday and I was like, all I have is an undershirt. I was like, I'll just wear a hoodie. And I told people in Utah, I'm like, I just don't care anymore. And what's great is audiences are like, yeah, we don't either. Fucking thanks for coming out. We have not worn anything but sweatpants for months. <laughs> this yeah. is great. Yeah, I've been calling denim 2021 formal wear. Like I can, <laughs> Anna, Winter, Anna Winter should have a denim theme for, uh, you know, all the next Met Gala. I basically have like button downs and then just yoga pants and that is all I wear for work. And it used to, my job used, it's like dresses, like blazer, yeah. heels, like that kind of vibe. And I'm like, this is so much better. Hello, I know you're an, are both of you athletes? Were both of you, like Matt, were you an athlete? I wasn't like she was. I wasn't, I wasn't good at No, that. of course. I mean, yeah, but like you were an Olympic athlete right or i i was a olympic on, level olympic level i uh, got still, olympic trials <laughs> which doesn't go that's, <laughs> that's a you whole. know what's crazy about me i know about the swimming world because i was abused into it by my mom's boyfriend <laughs> like i learned i learned about swimming in the in a way that i should hate swimming but i just have a vast knowledge of it I have a vast knowledge of swimming and women's basketball because of my mom's boyfriend that why, I hate it. Every time there's actual people in, who are fans of swimming, I'm like, why? Why? Yeah. For what reason? So, of the people. <laughs> my, my mom started dating my dad's ex-best friend and like we like moved him out to Colorado. It was, uh, I've described it before as White Trash Hamlet. It was, uh, he was like a swimmer at the University of Connecticut and he had gone to the Olympic trials when he was young. And so he was like an, uh, an elite level swimmer. And then, you know, when he moved to Colorado, he got out of shape. He's like, I'm gonna get back in shape. And he joined the masters. So he was swimming in the masters league. So every fucking Saturday morning, I had to wake up and go watch a bunch of 45 year old men and put on speedos and swim the four by one. Yeah, you ever had to do that? I said with the Masters team in college. Really? That was a good really? team place and I with a bunch of doctors, like a bunch of dudes in their 40s and 50s who were way faster than me and took it way more seriously than me. 
I mean, dude, they take it fucking seriously. If like Joe didn't get his laps in, he was fucking mad. And he was a he was a mailman. Dude, it's weirdly where swimming makes a lot of money because young kids buy the suits, but the, the old folks with this, uh, whatever it's called, uh, disposable income are yeah. just dropping G's yeah. on like three suits per meet, you know, $500 suits. They're those, buying the newest one, wearing them to practice. You know, the, you know, those technical suits that go to like your knees, those are like yes. 600 bucks and they last one meet. One meet for wear them for three days. Really? Four or five swims. Yeah. It's insane. On your last swim, you take a pair of scissors and cut them off because they're no good anymore. That's, yeah, a real that's crazy because uh, this was going on when I was about 13 years old. I was 13, 14, 15. So it was like 96, 97, 98. And I remember the Atlanta Summer Games, someone wore those, right? And Joe was like, that's bullshit. Those won't catch on. Joe was like, so like he, I'm surprised he didn't swim in the no like truck. Yeah, I I can't believe he he would kick the shit out of all these people, and then just have the same speedo every time. There you yeah. go. What a oh, yeah. The climax of that story was actually I don't know if you followed it all the way through '09. The suits got yeah. so good that they banned them. They basically really. They, oh, what, yeah. what they Drama. figured out <laughs> there was this, this really funny thing Speedo did where they're making these these textile suits. So it's suits from very traditional fabric, and Speedo sure. Said, he bragged about using NASA and spending $10 million researching where to put these polyurethane panels, which are kind of the same rubbery texture as the swim caps because they're, yeah. super, they're hydrophobic, they're incredibly slick surfaces. And they also provide, more importantly, buoyancy. So they'd have them, oh. they had this really smart looking design of where they put the panels. And then these companies with less money called Jacob and Blue 70 were like, oh, we're just gonna make a suit that's entirely that. <laughs> and guess which suit was faster? The full-on so in 09, just all the records got blown out. They're still getting beaten. It was there is year of my life. <laughs> what really did? They, oh were you swimming? Gosh. So you were swimming competitively, and they were like, "No more of those suits." No, it, well, when they had those come out, there was like probably sixteen months or so where those were all legal, and you just went best times in everything you touched because you were like, "Oh my god, I'm I'm floating out of the water." Yeah, this that. Is, the That's best how, thing in the world. And then they got rid of them and you were like, well, shit, I'm never going to go that time again. Yeah. <laughs> like, you guys are, you're, you explaining this suit with swimming is parallel exactly to my drinking and comedy where like, <laughs> I was like, this kind of makes me more loose. And then I was drinking and then I was like, oh, I'm incredibly carefree on stage. And then yeah. someone was like, you have a problem. You have a problem. Those are illegal. And I was like, all right, I got to ban it. I got to ban it. Get there again. <laughs> Unsustainable. Yeah, I was like, all oh, my top scores are, I was hammered. Um, but yeah, it's nice to also hear that my mom's boyfriend is wrong all these years later. Oh, so that, Yeah, because he was oh, a yeah, piece yeah. of shit. So I'm glad, I'm glad I'm like. He was like those yeah, comedians. Yeah like twitter instagram nah man i'm gonna do mm -hmm. this <laughs> it's like good luck what are you gonna put your clip up on youtube that'll be worth it and then now he's like shit, shit, i was fucking wrong well dan thank you so much for doing this we're gonna do a whole intro on you prior so probably just segue some swimming oh. chat but the whole point yeah. of this podcast is us just getting to know kind of what how you got to where you are um i think everyone's pretty aware you're uh, really good. <laughs> oh, no, that's, that's very, well, no, it's, it's weird to be on, on a reflective podcast like that, where you're like, well, I wish I could tell myself that, but I'm glad someone else thinks <laughs> well, it, because, 
Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, not doing comedy for a year consistently. Uh, uh, Gary Veter and I were just on road doing socially distant shows at Wise Guys. And immediately by like Saturday, we both felt like comics again. We're like, man, I hated that Friday early show. You know, we're like Thursday. I was just like, you are all angels and let's just talk and solve all the problems of the world. And Saturday, I'm like, yeah, that positive child abuse joke should have worked yesterday. I don't know why. And it was like, I suck. I fucking suck. And you're like, man, we're back, baby. <laughs> we're back to doing it. <laughs> yeah. All right. I felt good. And then I feel like shit. This is comedy. I did. Um, I was I was really lucky. Uh, I, I weaseled my way onto Oddball Comedy Festival. And I think it was like 2016. And I got to do Yeah, it. I remember it. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was 10K, about, about you know, 5 to 10K each show. Biggest I've ever done by so yes. much. First night, great job. First night, it was it was the Bay, uh, uh, and uh, I just remember it was it was a, like I just couldn't describe the feeling. It was such an unreal feeling being on stage. And the next night was good, and the third night, yeah. B plus, maybe just a B. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how it felt when I did. Yeah, how, do I did you, yeah. how do you gauge laps from ten thousand people? I'll, I'll tell you very quickly. Establish well, section, a baseline. And section can, F loved the yeah <laughs> the i asked I was, I was always amazed by that like those comics that do arenas i i'm like man that's got to be fucking difficult because you're adding in way more people but also a distance mm-hmm. where you're like that's got uh louis was at the cellar yeah, years ago yeah but he was talking about doing madison square garden and he paired it to starting a big truck where he was and i don't know if that's how you felt doing oddball but it felt like you know once you got him going the truck started moving and then it became a set but he said like that first and i was like man that's an interesting way to look at it because i think that's got to be daunting to go out and be like hi everybody (laughs) uh i i didn't have enough experience with it to to feel i think i felt that once when i did like i think i did a show with like two thousand people once i was opening for someone who brought in that crap yeah it was, it was 25 minutes. And I remember the last five felt remarkably different from the first five. It was that it yeah. was once it was going, it was going. I had a, a very weird experience opening for uh, when I was like a year into comedy, Angela Johnson, let me cold open a show with like five or 10 minutes. It's like 3000 people in Atlanta. I, I didn't really know what I was doing, but uh, I remember I could feel pockets where I was bombing and I could feel pockets where I was killing. Like I remember the, the left. Oh lower closest to the stage they liked me portion hated me and there was one little section up in the balcony it was weird because if you were sitting in those two sections i was a good comic if you were sitting where anyone else i was bombing that's the crazy thing about a audience that large is two different audience members can have completely different experiences so one of them leaves and they're like that guy at the front sucked and then like another person leaves and they're like write down his name matthew broussard okay well write that down that guy was really funny like we're gonna see him and you always wonder if they're, if, you know, I've always wondered if people I've bombed, if I've ever made a fan of someone that I bombed in front of early in my career. I think I have this theory that you solidify a fan by bombing in front of them. Because if you ever watched someone, have you ever, there's a comedian you didn't really get and then you watch them bomb and you're like, oh, I like them now. Because they're ah, just- yes, yes. Reaction. Uh, you know what's, that same exact thought process wasn't that I didn't like the comic. I actually loved the comic, but I didn't realize that was watching Nate Bargetsy bomb 
made me realize that he might be one of the greatest comedians of all time. <laughs> Just because what he was saying during the bomb was so objectively hilarious that I was like, how is he still bombing? This is crazy. Because he, we would be doing the Broadway comedy club, The World, next door. So it was all these barked in foreign tourists that didn't really know what they were seeing. And then it's like me, Norman, and Nate, but this is 10 years ago. And we're like in between a bunch of barkers. So you're seeing like six barkers and then Mark Norman, like a young Mark Norman. Then you're seeing like three more barkers than a young Nate Bargetzian. I would watch Nate bomb and I'd be like, he is the funniest person I've ever seen in my life. Cause he would just be bombing. He'd be like, y'all not like me, y'all hate me. What's going on? And he just started. And then now you see him, you know, where he's at now is his act is doing theaters. And I, I watch him, you know, he's got a new special coming out and he's got, a little bit of that in his act and you're like oh he i was there i watched him find that bombing and yeah. i think that was like really interesting to be like damn dude i remember when you used to question the audience if they didn't like your accent and now you're just fucking you know doing sold out theaters that, that contempt and that i'm better than you even like even if this wasn't going well i would still know i'm good <laughs> yeah, of, yeah 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 dude he's like y'all are what are y'all talking about well no he would do it in a funny way where he would be like almost like if he made a mistake and he was unaware of it he's like did i do something are y'all mad what's going on and there's like watching at him and they're like no dude they only speak dutch <laughs> like they don't know they don't know what you're saying they have zero idea of the words that are coming out of your mouth speaking of people who made fan bases by bombing uh bill burr yeah yeah that's one of the funniest uh i was on a podcast with him and we asked him about that like what was that like and he was like it was interesting because I would think if you or I went through that, I think I would have an attitude of like, man, did you see me turn that shit around? Did you see me like, did you see me take those people and fucking turn them? And Burr, when we asked him on Bobby Kelly's podcast about it, he was like, yeah, I was afraid it was going to become a normal thing. Like audiences were going to be like, nah, this is the guy you boo. You boo him and then he yells back at you, which I never thought of that, but it makes complete sense. That you that enough idiots would be like, yeah, here's how you do like you boo him and then he fucking yells at us and that's the show. Wasn't that kind of like Andy Kaufman's wrestling persona where he like yeah, invited completely? Yeah. yeah, where he would like, you know, there's people that invite that kind of shit. And then there there's a guy like Bill Burr who's like, No, no, I'm one of the greatest of all time and I'm crafting these bits. You know, you should listen to my bits and they're like, nah, bro, we're gonna boo you until you yell at us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I heard an analysis on that that was that was just that really really blew me away of just how thoughtful he is. He went on stage and everyone had been bombing. He knew it was hopeless. And if you listen, he uh, was doing Philly and Philly sports related material that shit on the town because he knew it was unbelievable. It's my favorite thing. It it was it was more worked out than it sounded. Like it was I was because I remember hearing Uh, that that Rocky statue thing and being like, yeah, he goes. Oh, good. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, it does. It looks off the top of his head. He's like, you guys are so racist. You would rather put Rocky Bar, you know, Rocky Balboa than a real black fight of Joe Frazier, who's from Philly. And you're like, man, that's such a good point. Did he, you're right. I thought that was off the top of the head. No, he said, so he said this, and this isn't to discredit him. I always say whether a joke is made up on the spot or not, if Mm -hmm. you couldn't tell, then you should be more impressed. Um, Yes. his strategy was he knew half the crowd drove in from Jersey, even though it was a Philly show. So if he shit on Philly, he would lose the Philly half, but would at least get the New Jersey half. 
So if you listen That's to great. the crowd, it's very mixed. A lot of people are actually really liking it. Yeah, dude. He starts with like, I think he has the line where he's like, um, I hope Donovan McNabb's knee shatters into a thousand pieces. And then you just hear like half the crowd be like, I'll fucking kill you. And then half the crowd's like, holy shit, I can't believe you said that. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, fuck. Oh, my God. So where did you start yeah. doing stand-up? What, uh, what location? I started, I started doing open mics when I was at the University of Arizona in Tucson. I used to go to Laughs, Com Laughs Comedy Club. That's a small city, right? So, She's from very Tucson. small. It's a college. I lived in Tucson. Wait, wait. Saguaro National Park. Okay. I was a kid. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Saguaro's. What's up? I mean, um, Arizona's got, Tucson's got a lot of beautiful things about it. And I met some of the most important people in my life there. But overall, hard pass. That's yeah. a hard pass. It yeah. is a small college desert town that it's, um, yeah, when I first moved there, it felt like moving to a city that had just survived a massive war and was just on the rebound. Also, people don't realize, like, when you live in Arizona, especially in Tucson, like, it's it's a small city. Like, there's the wildlife there is really trying to kill you. <laughs> yeah, like, it's aggressive. It's very aggressive. Your life. Every single day, you check your shoes for scorpions. I got, like, <sighs> by a rattlesnake at one point. Like, bobcat in our front yard it's a whole that's a part of your everyday existence and i'm in colorado where if you left your keys in the house you just run across the yard and go into your house and grab your keys but in arizona you're like let me go the long way because it's all a bunch of cacti <laughs> and i don't want to get stuck in my calf for running across this little fucking rock lawn exactly um did you how much stand-up was there to do in tucson yeah. it doesn't seem that big of a city it was very limited. It was very limited, but there were awesome options the more you worked in the club. So I did like an open mic when I was like 20 and then was like, yeah, that was crazy. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm being crazy. I shouldn't have done that. And then when I was 21, I was like, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to fucking do it. And I just started going every Thursday to the open mic and signing up. And it's like anything where it was awkward the first month. But by week three, I knew five to six people that I could have a decent conversation with and then, you know, watch the open mic. And then I, a couple, I think like six months, within six months, I was doing guest spots and sometimes they would let me MC. Wow. Like if, so it was like pretty quick that I was MCing. And then the second I MCed, all these casino gigs opened up where they were like, you could do the Desert Diamond Casino on a Monday, or you can drive up to Sholo, Arizona and do a Thursday show with that weekend's, or that was on Wednesdays, because that was that weekend's headliner. So the headliner could fly in early to Tucson, you would drive them up to the Honda Casino, do the show, and then drive them back to laughs. And they would, you know, a lot of the times you would be hosting for them all weekend. So it would be like people that I loved working with, like Troy Baxley or Ben Creed, or guys that... Because in, in, a, in a small town like Tucson, you're not seeing elite A-level comedy. You're seeing guys that might have been good and had drinking problems or drug addictions, or you're seeing straight up hacks. So Cruise. what's that? No credit cruise comics who just- Exactly. A guy that's like, you know, live from evening at the improv. And you're like, <laughs> damn, dude. Yeah, damn, I, you've been in this game a long time. At a similar home club with yeah. bring in anyone with names. Uh, but it was Wait, awesome. which club did you start at? Uh uh 
the comedy showcase in Houston was my where I really got up and going. Damn. And they got better. Yeah, Houston, they had waves, but at that time, I I didn't know anyone they were bringing in, and I listened to a lot of comedy. So. Yeah, well, it was that. What did you have in Houston? You had that and the Laugh Stop, right? I I started comedy like three months after the Laugh Stop closed. Oh no! My first open mic was in that room, that legendary room. <laughs> I mean, everyone, everyone from fucking Houston. I mean, that put out that room put out so many legendary comedians that it's crazy that it like closes down and it's like you're like a punk band that's like we moved to New York a month after CBGB, uh, but we <laughs> learned. Yeah, man, it was Tucson was very good to learn how to just do stand up without any long term ramifications, which I think is very important for young comedians. Go fail very quietly go go fail hard really quietly because then i moved to new york by the time i was like co-featuring at laughs and i moved to new york with confidence of like i'm doing fucking 25 to 30 watch out you city dorks run tucson <laughs> yeah i am the king of the old pueblo and then i moved here and immediately was like oh shit i suck i have to restart I went to I went to a couple open mics at the pit and then I went to one of the very first open mics at the creek in the cave called Kingdom of Heaven that was hosted by John F. O'Donnell and Timmy from the White Boys, you know. And I watched like Sean Patton, Rory Scoville, uh Jesse Pop, um, guys that I was like, oh fuck, I am terrible. Like all my jokes were like I got a lie for this homeless guy. I tell him, yeah, man, yeah. And people would laugh. And New York, New York is like, what the fuck are you, you dork? What are you talking about? So I just went back to open mics. I just like, obviously it's not like I had a choice, but I just threw myself into open mics and was like, I got, I got completely rid of all ego. Cause I was like, this is a restart. I got to restart this. I have to learn how to write jokes. I have to like, and I would really focus on that. Like, how am I going to write a better joke? So you moved, can we, first of all, I want to hear, why did you do your first open mic? What was, I, I was obsessed with stand-up. I was obsessed with stand-up. Kind of like the way, sorry, when you were just like, I listened to a lot of comedy. I, it was just a thing that I loved. I was a fan of from the time I was very little. I just liked stand-up, but then when I got to Arizona and I got to Tucson, I was able to download Mitch Hedberg's album, you know, like random Pat Oswald sets that I never heard or Chappelle bootlegs. And I got really into it. And I got real into Opie and Anthony. And I'd start listening to Opie and Anthony. And I got into Patrice O'Neill and Bill Burr and Louis C.K. And, you know, knew about David Tell from his Comedy Central Presents and Insomniac, but then like listening to him on the show, Colin Quinn, it was just like a thing where, Opie and Anthony, the mix of Tough Crowd and Opie and Anthony and the documentary comedian showed me through those things. I was like, man, I want to be a New York City comedian because I love the idea of just everybody's a comic, everybody's doing sets, and then you sit around and talk about sets. It was like the nerdiest shit I could think of was like, oh man, I got to move to New York. Like I have to. And so like my first six months in New York, Anytime I'd go to a comedy club that was in the, the movie Comedian, I'd be like, wow, this is where he talks to Orny about the Glenn Miller band, but they don't have a cappuccino machine anymore at Stand Up New York. You know, it was like small things. And then I met Joe List three months in and Joe and I would just out of no, we'd drink together a lot but and do open mic. Then like 
he was obsessed with comedian as much as I was, but he was further along in comedy. So he had started opening for Nick DiPaolo, for opening for Dane Cook and David Tell. And I was like, this guy's actually, you know, you're fucking, you know, these guys. I know T.C. Hatter and Marcy Ann and like fucking, you know, these the headliners named like Bobo the Fox. Like you've never seen him. <laughs> so it was stuff where it was immediately like, it felt, Tucson felt necessary for me to see if I liked it. It was like Tucson was the test drive of stand-up. Mm -hmm. Like, is this something you would want to do? Does it feel good to get on stage and do jokes? And then New York was like, all right, let's take a fucking shot at this. Yeah. So it was two different phases, I think. You were in college then, so while you started. I was very, I was wildly unpopular at the University of Arizona. <laughs> I <laughs> did not, I did not, the culture, I did not like uh, I the weather. <laughs> I, I, I didn't, yeah, like, it was all Greek. Very from what I know, like very broy, dude. I said something to my girlfriend three days ago when I got out of the shower that made me laugh so hard. She was in the other room getting ready, and we talked about something to do with old fashion. And I just went, "Yeah, well, you know, I used to have like seven Von Dutch hats." <laughs> and I just heard her. I just heard her be like, "What?" And I was like, I'm, I'm fucking around. And she's like, oh, you asshole. <laughs> she was like, I, I was genuinely worried that you were one of those guys. I was like, no way. I could have never afforded that. Um, oh, we were talking about Abercrombie and Fitch. And I said, like, Old Navy was my Abercrombie and Fitch. And then I, I made a Von Dutch reference. But it was like, those guys hated me. Because those guys were, like, bedazzled jeans and Von Dutch hats and, like, hanging out with women that are overly tan with like bleach blonde hair and they just had their dad's credit cards and there were never any like they weren't they didn't feel like real people they felt like giant children because they'd be like i'm gonna go to the bar and i'm gonna pay a tab and i'm like i have 36 dollars till my fucking <laughs> check from the and then i lived with a drug dealer so i would like steal weed from him but he was like popular with those kids so it was this weird thing where we would go to, he and I, he would bring me with him to these parties and I would just sit in the corner with him and be like, this sucks, dude. I just, I want to leave. And when I found, when I was about 20 years old, I was already working in college radio. I got hired at the radio station in Tucson at KFMA. Shout out KFMA day. <laughs> Largest outdoor concert in Tucson. Um, but that was more when I felt myself. When I got hired at KFMA and I was like, all right, I'm going to do open mics. And then it was like Tucson became awesome because I started hanging out with people who were from Tucson and people that went to like high school in Tucson. I, I started hanging out with T-Lokes and I liked it because all the U of A kids were worried about Greek shit and like bars and who had a Range Rover. And I was driving my 96 Dodge Stratus just trying to go fucking tell jokes. So it was a thing that I, because of stand comedy, I got my degree from the University of Arizona because I probably would have dropped out had I not found uh, radio and stand-up. What kind of student were you? Terrible. Hey, get the degree. I was one of the greatest, uh, I was one of the best cheaters you'll ever see in your life. Um, <laughs> you and what I like, yeah, I'm, I am amazing at cheating. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you can even cheat on a test, I got you. But uh, when I liked a subject, I'd get real into it. I'd get real into it. And so when I kind of knew I was going to do stand-up around my junior year is when I started doing heavily. I was like, well, this, 
I kind of knew I wanted to be, my idea was like, get a journalism degree. Then I was like, well, why don't I minor in political science? Just because like, if I'm going to do stand up, I should kind of know how the media and politics work. I didn't think I was going to be a political comedian, but I was like, you know, why don't I study things that I might find interesting that could help me with stand up? And that was very valuable because it was like, oh, fuck, man, you know, I can learn this history class and then I write about it and it would it would it would feel like it was complimentary. That's why I majored in math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're like, dude, I can count letters. I love subspace method. That's that's what <laughs> yeah. People. <laughs> I watch you. I, I walk in on a coffee shop of you writing jokes, and it's just you putting like seven, nine plus teen. Like, oh, what are you doing? Like, I'm figuring, figuring out the rhythm of the sentence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're you're an algebraic comedian. Um, one thing. So it sounded like when you found it, you jumped in pretty quick, which is is surprisingly rare. You 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 had that uh, within within a year. I'm all in. Attitude. Oh man, yeah. I would probably say you know i knew i was gonna do it before i did it i just like always knew i wanted to do it i just truly didn't think i was funny enough to do it yeah I was, I was like the funny kid in my i was the funny kid with my friends i was the funny kid at work i was the funny kid in school that i get in trouble for it but if you're like are you professionally funny i'd be like fuck no so i was blown away when i met someone with joe list that graduated high school and then just threw himself into the Boston comedy scene at 18 years old, and which is notoriously one of the best scenes. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Especially then. What What do you think yeah. kind of gave you, what helped you get over the hump of just like go to your first mic? Was there a specific thing or you just, it all came together or you saw, he saw a flyer? Like, what, what was it? Yeah, I, I looked it up because I was like, man, I got to try it. I got, I think... The, the thing that really pushed me to try it my sophomore year was I, in between my freshman and sophomore year, I moved up to Alaska to live with my aunt and I ended up working at a fish cannery. And there was where? a moment where I was uh, in Kenai. It's in the Cook Inlet. It's about two and a half hours southeast of Anchorage. I think we went there. Yeah, I think we went there. Yeah. yeah. It's like uh, Kenai River. Uh, my aunt lived in Soldotna. I worked at Soldotna Hospital, but I lived... I worked for a place called Pacific Star Seafoods, which was in Kenai. And I got to be a part of the dock crew. And that was like the most, I didn't grow up with a dad. So that was the most manly men I was ever around. Okay. And there was this moment where we were smoking weed on a lunch break and I was fucking killing. Like I was fucking murdering in this room. And I was like, dude, I think I got to try stand up. It just right at that moment, I was like, I don't because these guys scare the shit out of me and I'm making them laugh. Whenever you What's in that? your mind, you're like, thank you, dad. Because <laughs> they were the yeah, yeah, dude. Club is thank you. A father figure. Thank you. Yeah, dude. It really, you know what it is, man? And this is not to get overly corny, but moving to New York City and starting to hang out with people at the Creek in the Cave and doing mics and starting to fall into a group with like Joe List and Mark Norman and like, you know, guys that I met. It felt like the first time I was accepted into a group where all my ideas and values aligned with someone basically right off the jump. Like I used to love professional wrestling and everyone I talked to in Arizona is like, that is fucking gay. And then I, I moved to New York and every, like I made a bunch of comics and they're like, you want to come over to my house and watch the Royal Rumble? And you're like, 
more than anything. More than anything. <laughs> yes, a thousand times, yes. It was, yeah, it was like, I, I felt, it felt so good. And I think that's what eventually built up this like severe defense I have about stand-up comedy in New York City. Like I'm very defensive about it and I'm very proud of it. I um, I feel the same way despite not having moved to New York until I was about, what was it, 2017? I was about six years into comedy when I moved to New York. And I, I felt that well, there was a moment for me where I think it was with Mark Norman because I, I did Houston, LA, and I never felt like I fit in in LA. And then yeah. um, I, I, it was Mark Norman and uh, Vecchione. They, uh, they yeah, finished I mean, this that's why I finished set and Mark goes, love that new bit. Here's a tag for the other. And Vecchione just pulls out a notepad to write it down. I'm like, oh, these people love this the way I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Julian McCullough, who is one of my like favorite people slash comics of all time, and he's so goddamn funny. Bridge between my character and your character on Guy Code. Dude, I honestly, we are the Pokemon evolution. It yeah. was Julian, me, and you on Guy Code. Oh, my bad. Okay, so he's our granddad. He's our granddad. He was season one and two. I was three and four. You were five and six. We were the white guys. Yeah. We were basically like the power forwards of Guy Code. We were like the European, just get the rebounds, kick it out to Schultz or to Stefano, and then just like, get back to it. Mateo, yeah, but, you know, Akash. Take yeah, yeah. I go, I go, dude, watch this alley-oop to Charlemagne and Lil Duval. Yeah. But it, moving, uh, Julian, was a guy that I always looked up to when I was coming up. You know, he was like, when I moved to New York in 07, he was emceeing at the cellar. He was emceeing at Stand Up New York. And he was so fucking funny. And he was like, cool. And Julian and I became friends. And he was about to move to LA. And I was like, man, I don't want you to move to LA. You know, and he's like, nah. He's like, I'm going to miss moving in LA. And he said the difference between LA comics and New York comics. And it struck me in such a way that to this day, I'm like, that might be the perfect analogy for the differences. Where he's like, in LA, everyone wants to talk to you about what they have going on, what yeah. projects they're working on, what upcoming things they'd be a part of and working on. New York, people want to complain to you about great bits other comics have. <laughs> Where it's like, have you fucking seen this joke, that cocksucker? <laughs> like, yeah. Andy Haynes' cauliflower bit. Like, I, I, mm -hmm. I feel like four different people, like, it's a fucking four minute bit on cauliflower. <laughs> yeah, you're like, six seconds. Yeah, you're like, it's so good. It just makes me so mad. It's so mad. It's such a good joke. This is a, I, there's a famous quote that I'm, I'm ruining to say it, but uh, I always thought it was a uh, New York comics say funny things, LA comics say things funny. Like that was. Yeah. yeah. I, I would really, you know, I always thought, um, and I still think that, that like, just blindly shit on LA comics is very naive and uh, not you're not taking in all the positives they have. They are much better performers than New York comedians. They always have been. Much, much better. I don't know if it's because they have more space. I don't know if it's because they have more time. I don't know if it's they get less money, but they... Do you think it's more theatrical? Yeah, it probably. It probably has a lot to do... Yeah, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that there is so much acting work out there that they are, you know, they know they got to sell their shit because there might be a casting director. Yeah, Whereas like, New exactly. And every New York comic is kind of doing their jokes 
hoping David tells in the back of the room and you'll get off stage and I'll be like, that was brilliant. And you're like, yes, yes, <laughs> that's all you want. So it's, I don't, I used to, when I was younger and I moved to New York and I really like became a New York comedian, I think I was really um, like shitty about LA comics. And then I just became friends. Ari Shafir moved here and I became friends with LA comics. And I was like, man, I was fucking wrong. There's a lot of fantastic comedians in LA. I just, I hate it because I could, I know I could never develop there. Yes. So when comics yeah. actually become full entities, the way, like, I look at, like, kind of my peers, Jack Knight and Jake Weissman, are yeah. guys found their voice and their acts doing L.A. shows, driving to yeah, L.A. Yeah, man, I saw, Jack, I saw Jack do a set at Moon Tower, and I got off stage, and I did not know Jack, and I was like, man, you're fucking funny. Like he just, he, like that guy. And I think there are people that can develop in LA. I mean, if you wanted to, you could say that the final evolution of Burr was when he moved to LA. And that's when he became the great comic, you know, the Hall of Famer, yeah. even though he was slugging away. I think different people work different situations to their advantage. And I am a bigger fan of New York City. I'm a bigger fan of the, uh, of the amount of sets you can do, right. um, the amount of work you can get done. And I just like the East Coast. I like having four seasons. I like walking to a set in snow. It makes me feel like I'm trying uh, at a real job and not getting paid to be an asshole. But it's, there's a lot to be said about living on the West Coast. You know, Annie Letterman, who's from Philadelphia, has moved to LA twice and she loves it. She loves it. Every time I've talked, like Tim Dillon is a guy that grew up in Long Island moves to LA and is having an insane amount of success and loving the life out there, having yeah. a house and a pool and shit. It's, it's certainly not comfort wise. It's uh it's great. <laughs> he gave a, gorgeous out there. I mean, he gave a great, yeah. so, but he came back from LA. It was one of his first big trips there and he was outside the stand and I, I walked, I was like, how was LA? How are those fucking, well, how about those shitty comics out there expecting him yeah, to yeah. sit on them with me? Uh, <laughs> and most, and he just goes, he goes, well, uh, they're not short-sighted. I go, what do you mean? Here, ask a New York comic what their goal is. They're like, ah, I really hope I can move up from check spots at New York Comedy Club. <laughs> ask what their goals are. They're like, sitcoms, movies. Yeah. The, it, it, it's, that's a perfect explanation of it because I remember the first time I ever heard a comedian tell me they wanted to be an executive producer was a guy in LA. And I was like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, I'm going to executive produce show. And you're like, I was hoping to work Acme in Minneapolis. <laughs> like, yeah, Dylan's absolutely right. They have a they have a long term plan. Um, why? So you were doing comedy for how long was it until you moved to New York? And what kind of spurred two, the, two years? Yeah, I was I graduated college a semester late um, because once I started doing stand up. They were like, you have to take 15 credits a semester to graduate on time. And I was, I asked my guidance counselor, I was like, what if I do 12? And she's like, she's like, you can do that with, with a summer course. You can do that and graduate in four and a half. And I was like, well, that allows me to work the road where I don't have classes Thursday, Friday. So I can go Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then I was like 21. It was my junior and senior year. And then senior year, I went full in and I like told the uh, administrations department, I'm like, I, I'm a comedian. I work on the road. And they let me do correspondence classes for two of my classes. That's 
awesome. Props. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's really cool that they were flexible. Like, you know. oh yeah, I got to I got to uh, uh, cheat a C in French class because I spoke zero French and I needed it for my degree, and I was like, man, you idiots, you should never let someone take a fucking correspondence French class. I just picture you walking into the registrar's office and just like smacking your dick on the table, being like, listen. <laughs> yeah, um, I showed them my schedule. Not <laughs> yeah, they didn't care at all. Like we have paperwork for that. <laughs> Honestly, the woman basically told me like, yeah, anyone that wants to do correspondence could do correspondence. And I was like, I gave her a pitch with a printed out calendar, and I was like, so you got to see, I uh, I'm going to be working laughs Albuquerque, and then the casino in between, and then back over here, I'm looking to get loonies in Colorado Springs. And like they do not care. <laughs> yeah. The lady was like, do you have the check? <laughs> I gave her the check and she's like, your correspondence envelopes will be in the mail. And you're like, oh, sweet. Here's your workbooks. I was like, yes. God, there's some movie that reminds me of, I can't remember what it is. Uh, uh, what kind of comic were you when you left Arizona? Because you you saw that you, oh. I had a similar thing. I left Houston. Houston, despite being the fourth biggest city in the country, was a similar yeah. thing. I thought like I was a lot better than I was. Yeah, I was hacky and I didn't know it. I was hacky because I was, yeah, I was just trying to get big laughs and I didn't realize I was doing easy jokes until I got to New York City and I saw, I think the first comic that made me feel that way was Jesse Pop. I saw Jesse Pop do a set and I was like, these are all funny premises. Like the funny has already started. And it just made me feel like, oh, fuck, I talk so much before there's any funny and it was like tricks to whip a room full of drunk people in a mini mall to a laugh you know where you're like these kids got video games only video game i got was when my dad threw my head into the tv and they're like yeah and then you come here and say that in new york and they're like that's not funny and you're like ah shit ah shit were you were you killing when you were in arizona but just i could I wasn't consistently, but I could. I would have like once a weekend out of six shows, I would probably have like two two sets where I put the feature in a tough place. Okay. And then then like the other sets were like me wobbly legged, you know, like we got through that and spring up the announcements, especially like the early show on Fridays was the only non-smoking show. And I always, this week is smoking clubs. And I always remember being like, feeling like I was doing comedy for my grandparents. So I would bomb every time on Friday on the early shows. Every early show at laughs, I would fucking eat it. And then fucking late show, tossing a smoke in the green room, have a have a Jaegerator shot of Jaeger and a fat tire beer. And I was like, oh, now I'm gonna do comedy. And then I would have a great set. And you, so it was like, I think I learned how to deal with the emotions or the basic level of emotions of comedy in Tucson. So then you move to New York and you kind of realize, oh my God, all this stuff that I've spent all this time developing is, uh, tricks, yeah. is I need to redo. Yeah. How was that? I would imagine emotionally, probably kind of a trip. Yeah. How did that go? And how did Honestly, you- this is my advice for anyone that wants to move to New York to do stand-up comedy. And it is, you will have an easier time if you are truly in love with stand-up comedy. If you truly want to, I think the people, everyone I've seen that has a hard time with the move doesn't really know if they want to do the move. They just know they have to do the move. 
So they're like, I got to move to New York. I can't be in fucking Madison anymore. I can't be in, you know, Indianapolis. I got to move to New York City. And then I moved here with a guy that I knew. And I won't say his name. He's a good guy, but he expected too much too soon. He was like a, a he would headline sometimes in Texas and Arizona and Utah. And we, I moved to New York and he moved out like two weeks later and we went to Rafifi and we were outside smoking a cigarette and he was like, I'm telling you right now, if I'm not writing for SNL in six months, I'm fucking out of here. And immediately in my mind, I was like, you should probably go already. Yeah. Cause that's a weird, yeah, it's just a weird, that's a weird position to take to be like, give me success or I walk away. And like, I don't think that's how that goes. I've seen people get shit fast, but it's never been because they've fucking told people to give it to them. It's because they someone sees something in them. But I, what made my move, so it is, it's daunting to move to New York and realize all of your jokes are parlor tricks. That's the perfect way to put it. Sorry to put it perfectly. It, they were parlor tricks. They were fucking sleight of hands. Yeah, it was like, oh, look at that. Oh, like, oh, you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. Oh, thanks, Dad. You already fucked me. And they're like, Mah. but it, 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 that was daunting enough. But I loved living here. Like, I loved, I loved going to do an open mic and sticking around at Stand Up New York and seeing Chris Rock drop in. Or I loved being friends with Joe List. And we went to the cellar and I got to meet Colin Quinn. It was like, to me, the fandom was still uh, just as important as actually doing comedy. I was only two and a half years in. So it was like, I would see Jim Norton or I would see like Pete Corielli, like guys that I knew that I had watched that I'd maybe gone and found myself and been like, I fucking love this dude. I saw this guy's premium blend and he's fucking awesome. And for me, it was like, oh shit, oh shit. Like, and then it was also, fuck, I suck. I fucking suck. But I would hang out with Joe List, who was came up here fully formed. You know, he came down from Boston and was just fucking awesome. And I was like, damn. And just being around him and Mark Norman and I were both really new. And it was just like, everyone had the same thing of like, you want to go to another mic? You want to go to another mic? Like Matt Ruby one time was like, yeah, there's this Bowery Poetry Club. So we can do stand-up New York. And then late night, we can go to Bowery Poetry Club and do stand-up. And we we're like, let's fucking do it. And it just became a thing where you stop you you stop forgetting that you suck and you start concentrating on like oh dude i get to do this right. like i get to do stand-up and we then talk, you get better we talked about this with mateo lane just the weekly migration cycles over the open mics my god dude i i uh i worked for this lady that ran a bringer show at stand-up new york and i didn't know what a bringer show was she told me like call these 10 people and make sure they're bringing their people to the show and i'll give you a spot and i was like awesome three months in i'm like oh shit this is bringer show what's that you're the bringer you're the overseer of the other bringers you you brought not even that dude i was the fucking middle management i was the assistant manager i wasn't even like a guy that could make any calls i was getting my nuts stomped on too and i had to call these guys and be like you don't have your five friends all right well you can still show up and you can still get time you'll be later in the show so eventually it, it, it took me about two months two to three months and i was like dude i can't fucking do this and that was when i became friends with joe and he was like yeah you shouldn't do that so i had this like moment in my head where i was like i'm gonna tell her that i can't be involved with bringers anymore and i i went i went to her and I was like, 
I'm not going to help you out with bringers anymore. And she was like, that's fine. And I was like, oh, okay. And she's <laughs> like, you want to just, you want to just bark at the comedy village, which was the old Boston comedy club. She's like, I know the owner, you, you can bark and get spots. And I did. And it's crazy to think of all the waves of people that I saw come in and come out. Cause I would get up at the, at the mic and I, and I didn't bark a lot. I would bark and I would work comedy village, stand up New York, and then do as many bar shows as I could. And I just remember seeing people, this guy, Scott, I'll never forget this guy, Scott, because how I leveraged the barking to be to my advantage was one of the barking positions. There was like four on the corners and then you could sit on the stool in front of the comedy village, which is next to that firehouse on West third. You could sit on the stool and other comics would hang out. So it would just be a fucking hang. And then if someone walked by, you'd be like, Hey, come check out a comedy show. And it counted as barking. So I would gun for that fucking stool spot all the time. And I was friends with a waitress. So she would bring me a Budweiser that I would have right inside the door. And it was actually a fucking blast. Cause I would just sit there and get drunk and talk to like big J Nate, like all these people that I ended up becoming good friends with. And I was just like, Hey, you know, someone walked by like, Hey, come check out a comedy show. And it didn't feel as bad as being on the corner and being like, you guys want to see comedy, you, you know, like stopping them on the sidewalk and be like, Hey, you want to, you want to see some comedy show? So that was, that was a really interesting part, I think, of doing standup because it showed me people that were going to be there for a long time, put in the work. Yeah. Andrew, Andrew Schultz was a, a guy that I barked with. Like he barked in that cycle and one of the biggest guys in comedy now. And you're like, because he, he you, you saw who was there to work and who wasn't. And I remember this guy, Scott, just comes by and he's like, hey, man, I'm a new comic. And I'm like, oh, awesome. This is um, the Monday night show, you know, our open mics are this day, this day, this day. And he's like, yeah, 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 man. I was thinking I'm going to do stand up probably for like a couple of years, get in all the clubs here and then probably get on SNL and then make movies. You know, like that's my plan. And I was like, well, again, the open mics are Wednesday, Friday, and there's an afternoon Saturday. And he was like, yeah. And then I never, I saw that guy two more times. And then you see him like six months later at a weird bar show and then they're gone because their timeline isn't realistic. Yeah, and it's also just, I mean, if you were supposed to try to do, if you're trying to do something and be, well, first of all, that's a good segue into this question, but like, if your goal is to be really, really good at something, you need to establish the fundamentals up top. Yes, and, absolutely. And, 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 and that's, everyone knows that kind of at your heart of hearts. So that's like, if your true goal is that, then you won't be scared of developing just, if you learn to read, you start with hop on pop and you know, you, whatever, yeah. you, you're not going to bust out Shakespeare out the gate because you can't. So it's and like, that's a really, that's a really great way of kind of thinking about how Matt and I described Houston and Tucson. It was like learning how to read Dr. Seuss and, you know, learning how to read these like books and then go to New York and you're like, I have read a doctor's book, a Dr. Seuss. And they're like, yeah, dude, I'm reading Chaucer. <laughs> and you're like, ah, oh, okay. I'm a child. I always think it was, uh, I learned the craft, not the art. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Of like, yeah, there's, like, I felt like a cover band who started making his own music, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you write your own song. Like, I suck at this, dude. Yeah, I suck not, at this. Yeah, just to learn the proficiency. Same, same with sculpting. But, the, but that's also like, as, as, as someone who, both of you have been in athletics before and everything, there is also a thing about comedy of, where you work long enough at it and then you're like, oh shit, I'm in shape. 
like I'm in good shape and now I can push it to another level. And then that's when you start leveling up. And it's like, you know, I remember uh, hearing a comic, an older comic, be like, I think it might have been Colin Coyne. It was like, or it might have been Louis. He was like, 15 years, you feel completely different. And at 20 years, you're like, oh, I didn't even have it figured out at 15. And what's weird is I am at 16 years now and I just hit my 15th last year. And I was like, oh yeah. Like I felt an immediate shift of like, especially where I was at 10 or five and, and, and people don't realize it's like those repetitions add up and you start getting in this like ability to level up. Mm-hmm. So you have that, that, that consistency is important for that. And I, I remember reading an interview with Pat Oswald and he said like a lot of my friends in the nineties that were doing stand up got sitcoms and gotten movies and then tried to come back to stand up in like 2005 and they see Pat Oswald do it. And they're like, you're so good at it. And he's like, yeah, I never stopped doing it. You just, you can't stop doing it. That's why this year has been so hard because it's like, you know, Matt, you and I saw each other at that seller show with the mint. And it was like, we're just finding our way. We're, we're just squirrels out there in the winter, just picking dead fruit off trees. You're just like, I need to do this. I can't miss the repetitions. Oh yeah. my God. That was, I was, I watched that show and it was so fun. Oh my God. That was such a good show. So much fun. I think the audience yeah. was like, Oh, like we're doing, this is a real thing again. Those are huge. Yeah. That's how it felt. That's how it uh, really felt this past weekend at wise guys in Salt Lake city. Yeah. I felt like, damn, this is a fucking like, you know, what I love about comedy is I'm I'm in that place now where I can have a show and instead of being like, did I do good or bad? I can be like, I got some work done. I got like, I, I think I built on some jokes and I think like, let me try them again tomorrow. I said that this morning to her. I was like, I did this show last night. It was super cold. There was only 10 minutes, but like, I got some work done. Like, I yeah, yeah that's, that's really where you just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's how you know you're you're tenured in comedy is when you're like i got some decent work done on that thursday night outdoor show that's how i'll tell you if a show is good in pandemic i'll be like i actually got some work done so it seemed good one thing pandemic taught me is uh i will never go on stage again and just do jokes i know work <sighs> having had all this time where i'm like having had no time to experiment with anything new it is it is it doesn't matter how well i do it it's a tragedy if i don't go on stage and at least tinker with some yeah Yeah, you can't just like to do it's crazy to think about a year plus a year ago i remember i was finally starting to sell tickets like finally selling out shows like the hbo special came out and i've been headlining half filled rooms for fucking nine years now you know not eight or nine years and that's not a long time but it was like enough to be like man i'm never gonna sell tickets and i watched where you'd go to a club, it was your first time there, and you're like, yeah. yes, it's a slow weekend, but next time, I'm going to have fans here. I'm going to sell out. And after the fourth time there, you're like, it's always going to be half capacity, and uh, thank God the club draws people. <laughs> I, was, I was just, I was really tired of apologizing to waitresses for the rough weekend, where you're like, sorry, you're not going to make any money. I know it's only half full, and they're cutting the staff, but I finally started selling tickets and, like, selling out shows uh, because of bonfire, because of the HBO special, because of billions. And I was on stage in Denver. And I told this like story that I kind of remembered. And I got a laugh that I was like, nah, that's not a good laugh. <laughs> that was that was mean. That was me not trying. And you guys laughed at it like I was trying. And it kind of like shook me up a little bit because I was like, awesome. this is you know, when you see someone get so famous that when you see their stand up again, you're like, this is 
objectively terrible. Like you don't know how to be funny anymore. And I think what that is, is people start sniffing their own shit and then they expect everyone to smell their shit where you're like, no, you have to know when something is good or bad. So like what you were saying is going on stage and just being like, I'm gonna do a joke that works. There's an in, there's something not authentic about that. There's something not authentic about being like, so I talked to someone the other day and this is what they said. And everyone's like, all right, dude, we stop. Talk yeah. to me. You got it. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Yeah. What was your job when you got to New York? I waited tables at Dos Caminos. My friend's brother-in-law got me hired there as a waiter. I'd never been a waiter. And he, and the guy was uh, Scott, Chef Scott. He's the fucking man. He lied and said I had waiting experience because it was like a cool restaurant at the time. And I got hired and fucked up several times. It made Scott look terrible because <laughs> I wasn't a good waiter. But it was enough that I was, what's weird is I'm at my girlfriend's house now in New Jersey and spent the whole pandemic here. But when I first moved to New York, I lived on a futon three blocks away from my girlfriend's apartment and just lived there with my friend because he was the only person I knew in New York. And then I was allowed to live on his couch for seven months while I was waiting tables, just stacking money. Then I got hired at Free FM, which was formerly K-Rock, because a former KFMA employee was the music director there. And through my old station, they were like, hey, we got a great guy that can work weekends. And they hired me. And that was like union. That was like after a union money. So I was able to save up enough to get an apartment in Queens. And I've lived in That's old school. Yeah, dude. I didn't even know what it was. They're like, you, you owe your after a fees. And I was like, Okay. I was so broke that I never paid them ever. And I worked at K-Rock for two years and I got fired in 09. And fast forward to 2012, I'm going to do Conan and I'm supposed to film a sketch on season one of Inside Amy Schumer. And I get a call from my manager and he's like, hey, did you never pay your AFTRA? And I was like, what? What? And he's like, they merged with SAG. You're blocked from set from Amy's show. And you, they're going to pull your Conan unless you pay $3,000. It was like, what the fuck, dude? Everyone fucks with AFTRA's money. It was crazy. They settled the score fucking three years later. AFTRA is the and Fitch of the screen actors. <laughs> yes, totally. Might as well be called Sally Mae and fucking friends. because it's That's the, Where's our money? When it was Izod Lacoste. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. Um, they fucking got me. That's so interesting. I didn't realize AFTRA did radio. I always it's after- American. It's American Federation of Television and Radio Association. Oh, I just know SAG, and I know yeah. I, I joined SAG. Like there were there were only in my memory they've only been one entity. I, 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 yeah, I, no, but I I knew about SAG. I didn't know about AFTRA. So they're like, hey, you got to pay AFTRA. I was like, yeah, I got to pay AFTRA. All right, I'll see you guys later. Yeah, cool radio. Come get me. I'll be. I'm not going to be working at the oh, Lightning. And, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I won't be doing morning. Don't kill the video star. Yeah. I'll yeah. come to your acting career. Dude, it was crazy. And I didn't, I d- ended up not doing the sketch on Amy's show. And then season oh. two. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, it's because it was like, I think the day of or the day before I was supposed to film. And then, you know, I got a text from her season two. She was like, hey, can you fucking not be barred from set and come to a sketch? And you're like, yeah, I'm, I paid, I paid it. Um. So when you were doing, you sounded like you dove right into open mics in New York. Uh, did you like open mics? Did you do well at open mics? No, 
Um, I mean, I when I say well, I mean, did you? I would, I would, I would get. That's kind of how I found my way. Was I would <clears throat> at open mics, I would see what made the comedians laugh, and a lot of the times it would be a specific line. And I'd be, and I'd just like bloodhound it. I'd be like, all right, well, if this line's funny, why don't I build it line by line until I just have a bit of funny lines and then find out how to make that punchline really work at the end. So it started being a thing of like, open mics were so valuable to me because I could like go and, you know, at first you're getting just like a tiny little line or a tiny phrase or like something else. And then you like put it together and you come back to that open mic and you've got like a bigger laugh and you're like, all right. I remember like the first time I killed at the creek I was like, what's up? I was fucking humming. I was like, dude, I'm fucking good. Cause I had bombed so fucking much in that room. Yeah. And then just to do well, I was like, yeah. And then I started doing check spots. And that was a complete fast forward in my evolution because I was going up with the, you know, checks dropped on me, trying to win, win them back. Most of the time failing. Still easier than an open mic, though, right? Or harder? Harder. Harder. Yeah. Checks are harder than open mics. <clears throat> ah, shit. I don't know, man. I think it's like comparing apples and bananas because yeah. open mics are comics that are consumed with themselves and they want to know if their bid is better and they're constantly being like, I'm funnier than this. I'm funnier than this. That's not funny. I'm funnier than this. Whereas check spots are an apathy that you need to win over. It's people being like, I don't care who this guy is. I got to pay for my Bud Lights, my bucket of Buds. And then you're up there like, no. <laughs> hey, dating, huh? And they're like, all right, guy. I mean, I have fucking ate it doing check spots. Which clubs? More than one? Stand Up New York was the one I would mainly do. Then there was a Laugh Factory, Times Square. They would give me a lot of check spots. And then, um, yeah, it, then it became Times Square Art Center. And then it became a haunted house. Nice. So. Just a smooth transition. It's very smooth. Of life. <laughs> yeah, it's the inevitable. It's the inevitable process. They either all they all turn into haunted houses or laser tags. <laughs> oh, yeah, they all do. Cap City is a laser tag. <laughs> the perfect size it is for the it. Perfect size for oh, it. Oh no, they could put up some fun fun obstacles. <laughs> so we made it through your, your background kind of, you've transitioned, you're in New York and stuff like that. And now you're obviously, you know, you've grown a lot. You've done a ton of different things. What is your goal? What's making it? What's up? <laughs> what do you want, man? Man, uh, I hope to continue to evolve. I think that's very important to me is to continue to keep being funny. I think like all the guys I, all the guys I love my, one of my favorite comedians of all time is Colin Quinn. And he's been funny in, he would hate to hear this, but it's true. He's been funny in four decades. 80s, he's like a, you know, he's like a pop station, 80s, 90s, and now. He's got like 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, you know, now into the 20s. And Colin is always evolved and always been brilliant on an underrated level that, I think is like something to aspire to. I think it shows a humility. I think it shows a drive. And I think it shows an understanding of comedy, like a Dave Attell. Dave and Colin, I think are the, possibly the two most important stand-up comedians in the history of New York City, for, for, or at least for our generation. I agree with that. Yeah, I think they inspired 
a lot of guys that we love, like Bill Burr and Patrice O'Neill, but they're still young enough to associate with. Yeah. They're not like in their 80s and 90s. And, you know, you don't have to have the Mel Brooks talk where you're like, I'm a very big fan, Mr. Quinn. You know, instead you got him and his, he's like, oh, shut up, kid. I fucking hate you. You know, you want that. You want the, you get the Dave Attell who's still drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and very much Dave Attell. They're in their primes still. And right. I think that's, I think that's my goal is longevity and uh, creativity. I think just like making stuff I want to make and making it the best I can make it is I think what this quarantine has showed me is like, it's, it, you can be distracted very easy in this game by money or popularity or, you know, kind of bullshit accolades. Whereas the ones that just kind of stay humble and work hard and make good shit are always the guys that I ended up being like, oh yeah, Chappelle walked away from season three and four of Chappelle show because it didn't feel right to make. And I think that's what comedians, that's the lesson you need to take from Dave going to Africa. It wasn't, he walked away from 50 million. That's not the lesson at all. The lesson is he didn't feel right about making it. It was a thing that he had to pour himself in to make correctly. So he took himself out of the equation. Right. And that's why he's still able to evolve and grow is because he saved himself. So I think there's a lot of comics that are like, you know, what Tim will tell you, Matt, is like, oh, you know, LA guys are like, I want a sitcom or movie. But it's like, great. So that does two seasons and it's done. And then you get your movie and then that's done. Then what? Where's the, where's the renewable energy? Where's the renewable resource that keeps making your shit better and better? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. good at stand up. And that Dave Chappelle thing about walking away for the right reasons. That was actually why I didn't finish the last late night packet I was supposed to do. Right. Artistic integrity. I can't finish this. Dude, don't, don't, if you let me know that's an excuse, I will use it to bail out of so many things. So like, hey, can you come to my show? I'm like, you know what? Artistic integrity tells me I can't. I got to stay home and watch the challenge. I got to stay true to me. <laughs> I, I got to be me. I got to be me. And it is like a corny thing to say, but I also think it's like, a, it's a valuable marker on your compass just to be like, am I getting away from that? Because I was very lucky to do billions and have the job of billions. But I, as I've told like Big J and other people, it's like, that's not me. That's like an opportunity I've gotten that has been incredible and a job that I love with people I love. <laughs> but I wouldn't, when, it, when billions ends, I'm not going to be pining to get to the next billions. I'm not going to be telling my agent, like, I need to be on a big cable show. I've got to be, I got to be the star. It's like, uh, I want to be the lead of the spinoff trillions. <laughs> yeah. Just do Mafia in it. Yeah. Dude, uh, put me in the new straight to stars series, Mafia in it, where it's just me being a sassy old trader. Um, <laughs> Yeah, man. I don't know. I, I like I like doing comedy. I'm excited to do it more in 2021. Bonus question. This this might make you feel uncomfortable. I apologize if it does. Uh, you were described to me as someone who um, is able to say no to great opportunities because th they don't feel like a good fit. And that's a really admirable trait. Do you feel that's true? And when did you learn how to do that? Because I have a lot of trouble. Yeah, I think what it was was once I was able to pay my bills and I was able to do comedy for money in a way where I was like not struggling. I was, I, my bills were being paid. I could pay my Netflix without sweating. I could pay my cell phone without sweating. 
it became a thing of I ate shit so much on the way up that when I didn't have to eat shit, I'd just be like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, like you're at a Brazilian steakhouse, you know, the, when they come around with the meat and they're like this and you're like, no, no, red, uh, no to that because I had. Zoom show, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's like, I, I think it was, I, that's, that's not as much integrity as I look at it as luck, as like, I'm very lucky that I have the ability to be like, politely pass you know because i don't i still live with mike vecchione even though i'm staying with my girlfriend technically i have a, a apartment with mike vecchione and everyone that's ever busted my balls about that i'm like he's one of my best friends it's incredible to live with him both of us are on the road that most of the time we're at the apartment by ourselves so it fucking works out but i never changed my lifestyle i didn't get billions and then get a tribeca apartment with a fucking you know a Pilates membership at this like exclusive gym. I stayed in Astoria and just leveled up my fucking Delta miles. I was yeah. like, oh, now I'll just go get a bunch of Delta miles. And it was, <laughs> it, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I think that's a position that you always want to be in is just to be like, cause then when you say yes to stuff, people know you mean it. Like if you're like involved with it, you're like, oh, well he said yes to this, which also, you know, other flip side of that coin is like, he said yes to this. <laughs> that's fucking. Wants to be here. Okay. Yeah, but it's you know I think that's a that's a real lucky thing to have more than. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean. Yeah. Well, there was times where I couldn't say no to anything. No, of course it's. You know, there's times where you'd get a call and it'd be like, "Hey, you know, Bobby Kelly would be like, you got to drive four hours, dude, on it. You got to ride a four hour bike, you know, bus to Delphi to open for me, dude." And you're like. Not only do I, but that's again, I was lucky that during those, that stage of my life, I was still a fan of comedy to be like, fucking Robert Kelly's calling me. Yeah. Like I was still like, oh fuck, hey, hi, hi Bobby. Yeah, Robert Kelly is Yeah, coming. dude. Fucking Bobby was a, dude, Bobby was always a guy that I just fucking loved and always was scared of and then became really good friends with him and remained scared of him. <laughs> like I still, I love him to death and I'm still like, I'm still fucking terrified of you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, anywhere, yeah. uh, anything you want to plug, anywhere people can catch uh, Danceorder.com for live dates. I don't know when this is coming out, but I will be in February. I will be in Tempe at the Improv and I will be at Columbus Funny Bone. Um, those are both in February. So thanks so much, Dan. Dan. Dude, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. This is, it's always really interesting to learn about how great comedians got there. So. Oh, well, I appreciate you guys having me on and I can nerdly talk about comedy for hours. So. Really all we do. So. <laughs> yeah. You guys rule and I'll see you soon. I'll see you inside, hopefully inside. Man, imagine if we see each other inside again. Oh. Fingers crossed. Let's dream. <laughs> <laughs>